0: When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, 32, and 46. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Please proceed. Heavenly Father, please bless me and anoint my lips to proclaim your truth, that we may be made more awake and watchful for the return of your Son Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. So today is the feast of Christ the King the very last feast in the cycle of the Christian year, um, and a remarkable feast in that it's the only one I know of that celebrates something that hasn't happened yet. Right? Every other feast is commemorative of something that has taken place. True in our civil calendar, and our church calendar, you know, Easter celebrates the resurrection, Christmas, Nativity, but Christ the King, we're celebrating something which we're still waiting for. We're still looking expectantly for the second coming, the return of our Savior visibly. Christ the King doesn't celebrate the beginning of the kingdom of God. It celebrates, preemptively, the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. It's not quite the right word, but the best word I could think of, too, is the, the full enforcement of the kingdom of God. Because his kingdom has begun. It began on Ascension Day, A.D. 30. Um, and it's been continuing till now, but it's not been fully enforced. Right? Not manifestly, even in our own hearts let alone the whole world. Not everything is obedient yet to Jesus. His kingdom's not fully enforced. Um, this is a very trivial analogy, but it's the only one I could come up with. It's a little bit like how the driver's licenses are being updated for that star thing so you can travel with it. You know, if you don't know about that, you should look into it um, before you fly. Um, but it's already on the books. It's been established, but it's not yet fully enforced. But the day will come where your old driver's license won't work anymore. That's the best I could do for a picture of how um, Christ's reign is already established, but it's not yet fully enforced. It will be fully enforced on the day he comes back, when his kingdom is fully established and his reign fully visible. That day when he comes back has various names in the scriptures, the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. Chiefly, judgment is the theme because he comes, as we heard in today's gospel, as judge that when he came the first time in meekness, he came as Savior, but the fullness of, of his identity is he is Savior and Judge, justice and mercy in himself, when he comes as our merciful Judge. In that day, when he comes, Satan and the demons and all evil forces will be banished forever into what Revelation describes as a lake of fire, as what's described in our Gospel this morning as the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I want to make a a nerdy um, and subtle but important aside. It is a very meaningful detail that hell is not prepared for human beings. It wasn't made with the initial design of tormenting human beings. It's a place prepared for the devil and his angels. Here's the aside. Um, it's the very, very important distinction as it reveals the very character of our God and stay with me for a second of what the theologians call single predestination or double predestination. Single predestination is the name for just the Catholic truth there throughout the scriptures, especially in Ephesians 1, that all those who are numbered among the saved, those who've been ransomed by Jesus and will have eternal life, were predestined to be so before the foundation of the world. Jesus uses that very phrase... Be blessed of my father, to the place prepared before the foundation of the world. That's Christian truth. Double predestination, which is what some Christian traditions today teach, which is not the Anglican teaching nor the traditional nor the Catholic teaching, is the idea that God made some people to be damned. That from the beginning they had no chance, they were made sort of to, to be damned. Now it seems like a logical deduction. But the Scripture forbids us from going to that logical place. It actually suggests the opposite. I, there's this very meaningful distinction caught by the earliest interpreters in the Church, in this parable that it says, "Come, you blessed by my Father," and it doesn't say, "Come, you cursed by my Father." Origen, the Christian, inter- it just says, "You cursed." One of the earliest great Church interpreters, uh, Bible interpreters, named Origen pointed out that yeah, because the curse we bring upon ourselves, the blessing comes from the Father the curse we bring on ourselves. Okay, nerdy aside, uh, um, finished. But I hope you catch the important distinction there. Nevertheless, though hell was prepared for the demons, for those who persist in rejecting Christ, and I mean persist to their dying breath, who persist in rejecting the gospel, in rejecting his mercy, and as long as someone's alive, there's hope that rejection will not be permanent. But for those who do persist, the just punishment is to be joined with the demons in that place of torment, which Jesus calls here eternal fire. This is a reality, um, the sharp reality, this binary distinction of an eternity between heaven and hell that runs throughout Jesus' teaching. Um, And in this parable, it's the necessary backdrop that we need to have in view to then get to the central point, which he's talking about, between what distinguishes the sheep and the goats. That one of the chief deciding deeds that will be judged on judgment day is the way, in the way that deeds are judged as revelatory of what was in our inner person. Right? If we have faith, the answer is shown in our deeds. Do our deeds reflect that yes, we have faith in Jesus Christ as our savior. That one of the chief deeds that judge, the merciful judge is looking for are deeds of mercy. All of those lists of deeds are merciful things. To give food to the hungry. To give shelter to those who need shelter. To visit the sick. Evidence of saving faith. The Lord says, I will be looking for works of mercy. And I want to be clear that this is not a synonym for a generally tolerant demeanor. It's also not a synonym for um, voting for economic policies that have merciful effects. Both of those things are fine and good. But as Jesus said, even the Gentiles do such things. But what he's looking for is actual deeds of mercy done by you and me to those who are in need. As the Holy Spirit says most plainly in James chapter 2, judgment, meaning the second, the, the great judgment, judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Again, just to be really clear, not because deeds of mercy earn salvation, They're evidence of salvation. but They're evidence of being saved. But we don't just sort of wait around kind of bumbling along a life of like petty pleasures and entertainment just hoping that deeds of mercy will just kind of bubble out of our hearts. We have an attentive gaze for who is in need of mercy and we're actually looking in earnest to try and find a chance to do such an act. But how? What kind of mercy? Well... Um, you'll see on the inside of your leaflet, and one of the uh, gifts that the great tradition of the church has handed down is a, a distillation of the works of mercy. This is built chiefly out of this parable. Of course, you'll recognize the similarity. So look on the left, corporal, just corporal. I think that should be corporeal, uh, meaning just bodily. This is the list. To feed the hungry, to give drink to the thirsty, to clothe the naked, to harbor the harborless, to visit the sick, to ransom the captive, and to bury the dead the seven bodily works of mercy. Now, before we get to the second list, um, admittedly, we don't encounter these things every day, but we don't have to. The Lord's not saying, did you do a merciful deed every single day? He's saying, when you were presented with the charts, did you show such mercy? And if we aren't so um, busy that we fail to even notice the need for mercy or distract it, I think another element in our culture in particular, which I want to name, because I see it holding back myself and others from showing mercy, is um, a disproportionate fear of those who are in acute need. I mean, just picture yourself, if you saw someone in the, what Jesus is describing, hungry and naked you can also just mean half-dressed, right? Naked and half-dressed, kind of wandering on the sidewalk in front of your house back and forth. I think we have this sort of panic, you know, because of the one in a million times where that turns into something violent or criminal. We think, oh, call 911. And you can do that. But you missed a chance to show mercy to someone in need of mercy. I'm not saying be reckless and and throwing caution or prudence to the wind, but we can show mercy while being prudent. You know, you could bring a blanket out while having 911 on speed dial, (laughs) right? We can do both. You can show mercy. And if it turns out, actually, this is not a dangerous thing, well, you put the phone back in the pocket. And if the person's, you know, hallucinating, well, you call one as well. But still give them a blanket, right? To not allow fear to inhibit us entirely from deeds of mercy. But more than this, too, um, in an, our opulent age, the need for bodily mercy uh, doesn't present itself as often as I think it does in other parts of the world today or in Jesus' time. So it's meaningful to note that the church has also um, brought, uh, sort of distilled, seven spiritual acts of mercy. You'll see it in the right-hand column of the leaflet. And you'll notice there's actually the kind of a moral pairing between what it is to the soul as to what it is to the body, that these go in parallel. The spiritual works of mercy, to instruct the ignorant, to counsel the doubtful, to admonish sinners, asterisk there with humility and caution to bear wrongs patiently, to forgive offenses willingly, to comfort the afflicted, and to pray for the living and the dead. These are deeds of mercy that will present themselves with some greater frequency, I think, than the bodily ones. So um, I present this list here with a little sort of cut-out dotted line um, with a sort of spiritual uh, Advent challenge as we begin Advent next week preparing with expectation for the coming of our Lord, both the second coming and for as we prepare for Christmas. Um, To put this someplace where you might be able to kind of keep this list in view of the different needs for mercy and to be praying that the Lord might bring along an opportunity to show mercy. Again, not because we're earning anything by this, but just to show mercy, to demonstrate God's own character to those who are in need and to show our faith indeed in the presence of our Savior. So um, because the gift of grace is so free to us by Jesus, because our salvation is so sure because of his efficacious blood, one of the paradigms I think about the Christian life increasingly is that there's this room almost for, it's not quite the right word, but almost for play, for sort of experimenting, to use a more biblical language, for working out of salvation with fear and trembling, to have an assignment, a homework assignment, for Advent, almost for fun. But I hesitate to say for fun because the, the Lord Jesus says that it will be will be done as well on Judgment Day. So I, I encourage you to kind of keep this list somewhere in view in Advent, to pray the Lord might bring along an opportunity, to pray that He might give you grace to respond accordingly when you see it, and that the Lord's own mercy will be shown through you, as will be also revealed and in the Lord's own language rewarded. Amen.